0: In 1984, back in our Columbia days, the Red School ran six weeks in a row, something which causes current staff members to kind white just as the thought. Because we had a limited number of recognition classrooms, we ran three courses at a time. We had three evening lectures a week for each of those six weeks. 18 lectures in 35 days. I never wanted to hear another one by the editor, but it was
1: <laughs>
0: And gradually we've gone down to one lecture, but we didn't have exceptions, and this week is one. I'm happy to present Justin Howes, speaking on anthropological monstrosities. He is the curator of the printing museum
2: thank you Terry for inviting me back well it's a great pleasure to be here if you can't hear me especially if you're at the back of the room please shout and I'll then try to shout for various reasons which I hope will become clear I thought of calling this talk Updike's Irishman, or else of giving it a subtitle along the lines of, of that of one of the best sellers of the early 19th century, Caleb in Search of a Wife. <laughs> instead of Caleb, I'd have used my own name, and instead of wife, I'd have said footnote, so that the full title would be something like Typographical Monstrosities, Updike's Irishman, or Justin in search of a footnote. Typography is now so much a part of contemporary culture that it won't be long before we start seeing typeface makeovers on TV, changing faces instead of changing rooms. (laughs) (laughs) This evening, I'll be taking you back almost exactly 200 years, to the summer of 1805, and to a moment when discussion of letter form gets out of its box, spilling over the usual boundaries those of the printing office and the private library. And we get what's quite possibly the first ever big public discussion of letter form. I also want to use this evening to talk about some of my own research methods. Perhaps methods is a too ambitious term in the hope that you'll agree that the ends justify the means. My story and research begin with a footnote and with a joke. Not perhaps a very funny joke, but probably the only joke to be found in the two volumes of Updike's printing types. First published in 1922 and frequently reprinted. Updike repeats an Irish joke that he said he'd found in a London jest book of 1806 about fashionable Egyptian signboards. I won't try an Irish accent but it goes like this. An Irish, I will try an Irish accent. An Irishman describing the Egyptian letters which at present defaced the metropolis declared that the thin strokes were exactly the same size as the thick ones. So that's the joke. (laughs) And we have to assume that 200 years ago, you really would have been roaring in the aisles. I guess it's probably the way I tell it. I should say that there are several references in what follows to the Irish And I hope that won't cause offence to anyone this evening. If you like, whenever I say Irish, substitute something else. Polish, Italian, whatever. Updike assumed that his Irishman was referring to slab serif types, known in the printing trade from the 1820s as Egyptians or antiques. Following on from him, several other writers about type have made use of the same quotation arguing that although the earliest dateable slab serif type could only be dated to 1817 the letter form itself must have been around at least a decade earlier for Updike's joke to have been told in 1806 and for worse certainly slab serifs around within a few years of 1806 I can offer you one tonight, an example dated 1810, which only came to light last year whilst I was looking for something else. It's the earliest example yet of what was to become known as an Egyptian letter, and shows signs of being an early experiment. Look at the pound sign, for instance, in the top line. It's not entirely clear why these slab-serifed types, letters whose form was perhaps seen as an echo of the massive building blocks of the pyramids, should have become known as Egyptian types. The Egyptians we'll be be discussing are letters without serifs, sans-serifs. One possible influence on the later use of the term may have been one of the most outrageous buildings in London William Bullock's Egyptian Hall apparently completed around 1811 it was more or less opposite where the Royal Academy is now the hall was as you can just about see from the steel engraving covered with hieroglyphics much as you'd expect I'm not sure how accurate the engraving is but look for a moment at the pyramid on top of the building, just below the corners. And then consider the evidence of a small wood engraving which is used on the title page of at least one of the, one of the exhibition catalogues issued from the Egyptian Hall, also in 1828. It suggests that by the 1820s, the Egyptian Hall was surmounted by a cartouche bearing the word Egyptian in what may well have been an Egyptian letter. But by then slab serifs had entered the common currency of advertising types. As you can see here from a handbill advertising an event at the Egyptian hall itself. Slab seraphs Slab serifs were among the types which, which the printer Thomas Kirsten Hansard called typographical monstrosities in 1824. I love the three exclamation marks after typographical monstrosities. His comment that the strokes which form the letters are all of one uniform thickness isn't a thousand miles away from what Updike's Irishman had been saying 18 years earlier and in a way that gives circumstantial after the event evidence that the Irishman had been talking about slab serifs it wasn't until 1965 in a groundbreaking essay on the revival of sans serif letters The Nymph and the Grot But James Mosley suggested that he'd been talking about letters without serifs, rather than about letters with slab serifs. James added another jokey reference to Egyptian characters, this time from Robert Sovey's Letters from England, published in 1807, but written a couple of years earlier. Savi's letters were written in the person of one Don Manuel Alvarez Espriella, a putative Spanish visitor to England who was observing London fashions. And he says, the very shopboards must be metamorphosed into the mode and painted in Egyptian letters, which, as the Egyptians had no letters, you will doubtless conceive must be curious. (laughs) They're simply the common characters deprived of all beauty and all proportion by having all all the strokes of equal thickness so that those which should be thin look as if they had the elephantiasis. I can't remember how the Elephant Man was advertised, but uh, perhaps these types would have been a good, good type to use on the poster. There's still ambiguity here about whether these are serifed or unseraphed letters, Egyptians or Egyptians. The archetype of all Roman and serif types, William Caslon IV's Egyptian of about 1815, is what typographers call monoline, a letter in which all the strokes are of equal thickness. So, of course, of the slab serifs of 1817. Incidentally, the page I'm showing here is from a chasm on the fourth type specimen of 1816, now at the Type Museum. The pencil annotation gives the location for the matrices for this type, And I have a a suspicion that we may have the punches, since I think we have punches for the types in lines 1, 2, and 4. One day we'll find the punches for line 3. In a way, the most interesting thing about Updike's Irishman and about Savi's elephantiasis was that here we have lettering being discussed by the man in the street. Apart from throwing new light on the development of a specific letter form, sometimes in great detail, these comments remind us that the letters we use today are made and consumed in a whole complex of historical circumstance. I've recently been looking at ways in which letter forms were discussed mainly in the long 18th century, trying, I think, to get at a critical history of letterform through the eyes of the end user, rather than through charting a linear development of makers of styles and schools. So far, I've been skirting around the main issue, and before we go much further, perhaps we'd better look at just what it was that upset the man in the street in 1805? And why? What exactly were the Egyptian letters Updike's Irishman was talking about? Were they slab serifs or sans serifs? Three years ago, I was redesigning a new edition of James Mosby's The Nymph from the Grot for the Friends of St. Bride Printing Library. With the printer's deadline approaching, Approaching fast, I did what I usually do when I know that I should be working hard. I took time out and spent a couple of hours rooting around in my local junk shop, which was an odd place which sometimes has a few older books, 17th or 18th century, thrown out by the local public library. I didn't find much, but it did come out with an odd volume of a 1920s edition of the Diary of Joseph Farrington, a watercolourist and royal academician whose gossipy diaries, written over a period of twenty years, have given art historians great insights into the art world of Regency England. I'm not exactly sure why I wanted a copy, but in it there was yet another reference to these so-called Egyptian letters. On the 13th of September 1805, Farrington had been in Cambridge, where he saw a newly erected memorial by John Flaxman in Trinity College Chapel, and in his diary he writes the inscription is in what is called Egyptian characters, which to my eye had a disagreeable effect, scarcely at a distance appearing to be writing. If they're difficult for you to read, that may well be the focus on the projector. I think we then rang the printer and extended the deadline by a day or two. This was a spontaneous eyewitness account linked to a surviving inscription, still in Cambridge and still exactly where Farrington saw it. It appeared to settle once and for all the identity of the so-called Egyptian letters, It was also the first documented use of the term, uh, the term to to, to denote letters without serifs. I should throw in a mention of another monument by Flaxman, one which is 50 feet high up on the wall of St. Paul's Cathedral, and which I was allowed to photograph a couple of years ago when they had the decorators in for the first time in a hundred years. There was scaffolding going sort of all the way up into the dome. It was a great, great, great thing to climb up that. Ralph Willard Miller had been one of Lord Nelson's captains at the Battle of the Nile, and was killed when his ship, the Theseus, blew up. Discussing the wording of the inscription in 1801, Sir Edward Berry who seems to have been in charge of the practical details of the commission, said of the inscription, of course, our aim must be simplicity. Of course, this comment refers to the wording of the inscription, but it's very tempting to see an anticipation of our own idea, which perhaps is a 20th century idea, that sans-serifs somehow represent the primitive and the simple. It's difficult to know why Flaxman chose to use sans serifs just as it's difficult to know why he uses them on the title pages of his illustrations of Homer, also published in 1805. He'd probably been introduced to them by a friend at Cambridge, the traveller Edward Daniel Clarke, thought of such letters not as Egyptian, but as Grecian letters, and he just designed what had claimed being considered as the first sans Serif type, a Greek which he called a new species of type in 1805, and I think he must have been only a whisker away from designing the first sans Serif Roman. This is a wood engraving from one of his books. Going back to Updike, you'll recall that he didn't give a precise citation for his Irish joke—the one that you laughed at—saying only that it had come from a London jest book of 1806. This really bugged me when I was designing James's new nymph from the grot, because one of the things I like to do as a designer who gets involved in editing as to get the footnotes right. Updike's citation doesn't really cut the mustard, although I've learnt to forgive him this. If he had dotted his I's and crossed his T's, I wouldn't have embarked on this search and therefore wouldn't have a story to tell you. First off, I asked Phil Weimerskirch, special collections librarian at Providence, which has many of Updike's books, If they had it, they didn't. We can now search electronic library catalogues in ways which would have been impossible in the old days of card indexes. And I've just been in New York um, and spent a couple of days at Columbia using the ATF collection, which is still on cards. And using cards takes a long time and they don't seem to have any redeeming
1: features.
2: (laughs) Maybe at the British Library, but also using some of the Union databases, I started searching for everything with the word jest in its title. Just imagine doing that in a card index. And with London as the place of publication, and 1806 as the date of publication, no joy. And then I started ordering up as many jest books, joke books, books of wit, whatever, of the early 1800s, specifically of 1806, as I could find. Most of them are fairly dense, and their humour hasn't really stood the test of time. (laughs) With this image, I ask you to look at what's written on the window. And bear in mind that the theme of haircutting and shaving are going to recur quite frequently in the rest of this talk. So I'm going to tell you a joke from 1816 just to give you an idea of the stuff I was ploughing through. It's called Improved Shaving. A gentleman coming into a barber's shop to be shaved was tormented by the fellow's finical manner and insignificant talkativeness. In what manner would your honour be shaved, exclaimed the tonsor. If possible, replied the gentleman in silence. Okay. so there was a lot of that stuff. Um, I worked my way through I mean, huge amounts of it. Um, it tends to be in minute type, sort of badly printed, awful stuff. Um... And then I also cast my net wider and later, to taking works of humour, such as Pierce Egan's Life in London. Just in case you're following the haircutting, I've put some text up on screen for you. Despite finding lots of other interesting material, um, I was still actually no further forward in the search for Updike's Irishman. so in a way, library catalogues, databases, card indexes hadn't provided what I needed. Um, Antiquarian book fairs are now one of the best ways of looking at a large number of old books, some of which one wouldn't otherwise think of ordering up. It's a way of randomising the search. And at one of the two-day London book fairs, I'm attracted by a copy of the Spirit of the Public Journals, in remarkably pretty pink publishers' boards. I like publishers' boards. This wasn't a title that I'd come across whilst looking for Updike's Irishman. Nonetheless, having seen this volume for 1814, somewhat outside my time frame, on a bookseller's stall one Sunday afternoon, I decided against buying it. It was $22.00 only to get a nagging feeling later on that evening that I'd better go back for it the next day. You'll notice, by the way, that the title page doesn't contain the word jest, which is what i have been looking for. So a day later, um, having been back to the book fair and sort of rushed off to the British Library, I order up a dozen or so of the earlier volumes of The Spirit of Public Journals, and sure enough, there on the contents page of the volume for 1805, published in 1806, I found three items listed, one after the other: on Egyptian fashions, Egyptian inscriptions, and the petition of the alphabet to the booksellers of London. The first of these, the first of the three pieces in this volume turned out to be a reprint of a letter addressed to the Morning Chronicle, signed by Priscilla Plainstitch. I'll read out part of her letter, because it really conveys well the mania for all things Egyptian, which had seized fashionable London in 1805. I should say that at the time, people didn't, use, did, didn't refer to the year as 1805. Where I've seen it referred to, they usually say the year five or the year six. Perhaps I'll do that from now on. You've, 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 You've got the century. So Priscilla says, Mr. Editor, it's my misfortune to be a woman without any taste and to be married to a very honest man who has a great deal too much. Since this cursed Egyptian style came into fashion, I've never had a moment's comfort. Every article of furniture from the parlor to the garret must look as if it were manufactured by a cabinet maker at Memphis or Cairo 3,000 years ago. I'd love to know what she could have made of this wonderful teapot. <laughs> Priscilla was by no means alone in her criticisms of the Egyptian fashion, which seemed to have been brought back from Paris by the English visitors who crossed the Channel in 1802, taking advantage of the short-lived peace of Amiens. Back in London, Egyptian antiquities, including the Rosetta Stone, had been captured from the French in Egypt and were were being exhibited under tarpaulins in the courtyard of the old British Museum. One of the early fruits of the vogue for all things Egyptian was a facade for the office of the Courier newspaper in the Strand, drawn here in 1809 to illustrate Sir John Soane's academy lectures. Soane, As James Mosley has pointed out, he'd been using the sinus serifs on his architectural drawings since 1784. And curiously enough, that's only a year before the word serif first appears in print in a book of essays by John Pinkerton. It's almost as if serifs couldn't be chopped off without there being a word for them first. So, despite his long-standing use of sinus serifs, was vehemently opposed to the Egyptomania. But treated seriously, the Egyptian fashion makes an impressive title page to a new journal, La Belle Assemblée, a fashion magazine, I suppose it's the Vanity Fair of its day, engraved by Richard Austin, who was the punch cutter who had cut the bell types. And you'll notice the superb quality of his letter engraving in the detail on the right hand of the screen. Going back to the spirit of the public journals and the three pieces in that, there were two more letters. The first of them was signed Phelim Fingley and purported to have been written by an Irishman fallen on hard times who had for these four years being under the painful necessity of earning my bread by sign-painting. Oh, ye gods, he says, what a debasement. I don't know if there are any sign-painters in the audience here, but uh, it sounds like a a rotten profession. Fenway finds himself in danger of being reduced to the very extremity of distress. And he writes, You cannot have failed to observe that a new species of lettering makes its appearance over many shop doors. Some of the good people within will tell you, with the air of being men of taste, that it's the Grecian, some with looks of profound sagacity, that it's the Egyptian. It seems to be the fancy of the shopkeepers that the inscriptions over their doors to promote the sale of their goods must be quite illegible. The consequence is that newfangled sign painters who do their work in the Egyptian style run away with all of the employment, and poor I, who know better who know and practise better things, am left to starve. He actually offers to paint shop signs in the Ogham script, which he promises will be just as illegible to a London shopkeeper <laughs> as the very hieroglyphics of Egypt. Fame is actually very important because he tells us that opinion was still divided as to whether the new letters were Grecian or Egyptian. And One of the odd things about sign serifs in 1805, the year 5, is that there seem to have been two distinct camps. One, a blatant commercial use of sign serifs on shop fronts, perhaps shops with an Egyptianizing motif. And this seems to have attracted a great deal of ridicule. And then on the other side, there's Flaxman's restrained academic use of letter forms, revived probably from Greek inscriptional lettering of perhaps the 4th century before Christ. And this so-called Grecian letter either went unnoticed or was confused with the other. And that, I think, is what's happening when Farrington, sees Flaxman's memorial in Cambridge and says that it's written in Egyptian characters. I think Flaxman would have been very very worried about that. The next piece in the spirit of the public journals purported to be a petition from the letters of the alphabet to the booksellers of London as the guardians of the printed letter form which itself is a very interesting concept. It was accompanied by an editorial note which observes that a most preposterous fashion has been lately introduced in the inscriptions upon signs and showboards over the shops of tradesmen in, in this metropolis. The modern capital letters are rejected and the old, barbarous, awkward characters are substituted in their place. A tradesman's showboard has thus the appearance of the gravestone of one of his ancestors, with the letters partly defaced and scarce legible, and looking, more like a, and looking more like a requiescat in pace, an R.I.P., or hieroglyphics upon a catacomb than an invitation to business. It has a bad and corrupt taste and ought to be avoided, now the petition itself is full of pretty awful puns, which you might think are in a bad and corrupt taste. The alphabet essentially stands up and complains that certain merchants, shopkeepers and tradesmen, totally regardless of the usages and customs long established among your suppliants, and conspiring to injure their character, characters a pun, so it's underlined, and to deface again underlined, and obliterate every vestige thereof, have lately seized upon several of your petitioners, and having cut off the ears of some, knocked out the eyes of others, and have otherwise maimed, disfigured, and abused them, and destroyed their symmetry and fair proportions. This is only a hollow pretense of men, who seek to introduce liberty and equality into the Republic of Letters. And as evidence of their being actuated by revolutionary and levelling principles, your suppliants beg leave to observe that the capital members of your family, of of, of their family, have been the principal sufferers, and shorn of their fine aristocratic heads and tails, are now forced to become croppies and the great family of O's are reduced to mere ciphers. Some of that's a bit obscure, but croppies were ruffians who'd had their hair cropped short. In Britain we'd probably call them skinheads, and I suppose the US equivalent is a crew cut. Remembering Updike's Irishman, and the fact that our friend Phelan Finley hails from the Emerald Isle, it's interesting that the term "trophies" was being used specifically to describe the Irish rebels of seventeen ninety eight who wore their hair cut very short as a sign of sympathy with the French Revolution William fin- finger's uh, letter and uh, the petition of the alpha- alphabet were both tantalizing, but you 'll have realized but I was still no closer to finding Updike's damned elusive Irishman. And but Finley, although no doubt a blood relative, was altogether more sophisticated in his own discussion of the Egyptian character. After all, he can paint Ogham. The spirit of the public journals is arranged chronologically, but doesn't give dates for the pieces it reprints those I was interested in were about three quarters of the way through the volume, and as it turned out, had all appeared within a month of each other in London newspapers published in August 1805. The next step was to plough through just about every newspaper and journal for the summer of 1805, a period which, briefly, seemed more familiar to me than large parts of 2001 and 2002 and probably more interesting. <laughs> Discussion of sun serifs had been far more widespread than I could possibly have anticipated. And in September, even the London Times devoted a column leader to, to discussing modern improvements. Among other foolish imitations, they noticed the revival of ancient capitals now to be seen on many of our shop fronts and infinitely inferior to the letters we have in common use. Updike's Irishman does turn up eventually. In a little monthly magazine published in August of the year five, not the year six, but reprinted the following year exactly as Updike had said in a little book of Irish jokes, The Union Jester, With so much happening in August 1805, it's probably right to think that there was a sort of silly season in the press, just as there is nowadays during the summer. Parliament's in recess, and the newspapers tend to obsess about things like David Beckham's foot. Back in the summer of the year five, okay, we're at war with Napoleon, and so I suppose that sans serifs give, give a sort of useful light relief. One of the last comments that I've been able to find appears in the Gentleman's Magazine. Unusually, this is signed by someone we know about, J.P. Malcolm, a respectable historian and London topographer, who seems to have been put out by the, by the new fashion and even calls for a law to forbid this shameful descent into barbarism of characters. I don't know much about American politics, but I guess he was probably a Republican. Malcolm says, Whence is it that our tradesmen front their houses with the monstrous architecture of Egypt and adorn their shop freezers with fancy feather maker, seminary for young gentlemen, and their windows with shave for a penny, hair cut for tuppence, and dressed for threepence? In the Roman character used some centuries before or about the birth of our saviour. It's a big pity reading that photography hadn't been invented and wouldn't be invented for another 35 years. Wouldn't it be good if we had photographs of those signs? A last stroke of good luck brings me to the European magazine, again for August 1805. It contained an extraordinary letter described on the cover the title page rather, as Remarks on the Present Use of the Old Roman Characters. I'll read, a few, I'll, I'll read a few extracts from this. It starts, Through the medium of your valuable miscellany, allow me to comment on the writing of the signs over the shops of our London traders, and the prevalent and extended folly, that of painting the letters in the antique Roman capitals. Pursued. And this may seem like yet another variation on what by now is a well-worn theme. But our letter, goes, our, our letter writer goes on to say this. The idea is Parisian. And this, is, this, this isn't something we've heard before. It was one of the various excellent articles adopted by the frivolous French in their rage for innovation, alteration, and the antique. From Paris, he goes on, this novelty was imported soon after the last piece and I believe first publicly exhibited at the Panorama in the Strand to a view of modern Rome. From thence it extended to an artist and print seller in Fleet Street and was soon followed by a grocer in the Strand, a draper in Oxford Street and a few other dashing retailers but was still warily adopted, and continued at a stand for whole of last winter, when, lo and behold, spring had scarcely commenced, and Londoners had begun to adorn their shopfronts, ere the character in question spread with vast rapidity, and was bedaubed in strokes of equal thickness over the greater part of the metropolis and it's extraordinary having this blow-by-blow chronology of how sans serifs infect London. I mentioned photographs, or the lack of them, and astonishingly this letter to the European magazine was illustrated with somewhat crude but nonetheless very revealing wood engravings, a record, almost a photographic record, of the first shocking signs in sans serifs, And this is actually so good that you might think I faked it. One of them, shaved for a Penny, is perhaps the very same sign mentioned by J.P. Malcolm, who had said that it was to be seen in Holborn. So our writer goes on to say, not a tailor or shoemaker has any chance of sale now without the old Roman letter. Its celebrity has extended to Shave for a Penny, and for attraction to the immense bills of Astley's and Berserkers, wherein puffing capitals stands the Bravo's Bride, Zingina, etc. If it were possible to admit any advantage or superiority in this mode, it would extenuate for its manifest impropriety, but it really has none. It is certainly, on the contrary, barbarous and inconvenient, in company with a countryman the other day in the Strand, he was at a loss whilst deciphering umbrella manufacturer, and the name of Urquhart in another part of London is nearly unintelligible to most commentators. Our author really doesn't like science serifs um, They're clumsy in the extreme, he says, and devoid of a single beauty to recommend them, or anything whatever, except their antiquity. And it's curious that we now think of Saint-Cyrus as being rather modern. And what's actually worse than being old or illegible is the fact that they're unpatriotic. (laughs) The ridiculous copyists have adopted this wise fashion Sorry, the ridiculous copyists who have adopted this wise fashion injure the national fame and condescend to be the paltry imitations of those modern reformers, ridiculous and fantastic Frenchmen. You'll have noticed by now that the English don't really make good Europeans. Luckily, though, Saint-Serifs are a passing fad, a fancy, here today gone tomorrow. They won't last, rather like 1960s lava lamps. Let us hope it's merely the folly of the day, a fungus which will disappear as speedily as it has arisen, and that the good sense of our countrymen will correct the mania. It didn't happen. This is a letter which raises more questions than it answers, although it's very tempting to accept it at face value. But like any other document, it needs to be thoroughly assessed and evaluated. I wish we knew who'd written it. It's signed by L.Y. In a slightly unusual form, in which both start and end characters are uppercase. Where it's more usual in the European magazine for this sort of pseudonym to start with a capital and end with a small capital. There's an excellent website listing attributions of authorship in the European magazine, hosted by UVA, but unfortunately it doesn't provide any clues about L.Y.'s identity. The writer, from other paragraphs in in his letter, seems to be well-travelled, to have been in Hamburg, Lisbon, and Paris. And he knows enough about type to say that although Baskerville's neatness has been copied in our signs, and his types were sold in Paris, yet the French artist never emulated the beauty of his letter. He's also an authority on classical sources for sans serifs He seems on the whole to be telling the truth. I think he's a reliable eyewitness. But there's strong evidence that the signs he mentions are real. L.Y. tells us that these letters were first publicly exhibited at the panorama in the Strand to a view of modern Rome, which we know from the letters of John Constable had opened in July 1803, when Constable reported that panorama painting had become all the rage. The engraved key to the panorama, printed in West Smithfield, used some really up-to-date types cut by the local type founder, Vincent Figgins. It's possible that the old Roman characters were indeed being used in connection with the panorama, if not to advertise it, then perhaps to label some of its features. There are other points on which L.Y. appears to be correct, He mentions the immense bells of Astley's and the circus, and he gives us the titles of two of the melodramas he'd he'd seen advertised, Bravo's Bride and Zingina. Zingina. Bravo's Bride was Rosabella, whose life was spared and her hand was won by completely melodramatic means by Abellino, the Bravo of Venice. The play opened at the Royal Circus in Blackfriars Road in April 1805. Zingina, or the Heroine of China, was a spectacular, the Broadway hit of its time, and opened in August 1803. What's actually much less easily documented is L.Y.'s statement that the idea is Parisian, although the chronology makes sense. In August 1802, the Egyptians went to Paris in great numbers, and when they came back, they brought, they brought with them this craze for Egyptian artifacts. It's possible that they found streets and shops lettered in sans serifs, although there's no record of that French-sounding term, sans-serif, having been used before about 1830 and the surviving French inscriptions of about this date are characteristically modelled on the finely serifed, modern-faced types of the Gigo family. One can only guess that Thomas Holcroft, describing Paris in 1802, remarks on the reform of street inscriptions as one of the real reforms of the Revolution. If some, if, if some serifs really were widespread, in the Paris of 1802. It's possible that they'd have been associated with the circle of Jacques-Louis David, the painter who, who occasionally uses sans-serifs to emphasize Roman Republican virtues. David's most extreme followers were, to return to a theme of shaving and hairdressing, called the Barbu, the bearded ones a group of young radical artists who modelled their clothes on those worn by the figures on Sicilian vases, then believed to be the most ancient. Most shockingly, they let their hair and beards grow. There was a brief period between 1799 and 1803 when France was treating herself to a show of paganism, and all the young men, rich and poor alike, daily exposed their naked bodies along the banks of the Seine and tested their strength and skill in swimming. Sounds idyllic. The saturnalia of the directory, as it's been called, ended, though, with Bonaparte's arrival on scene with sword and tricorned hat. The students shaved their beards, presumably for the French equivalent of a penny, put on their hose and shabby jackets, and sans serifs, if indeed they had ever figured in this fashion for the primitive, went back into the closet. In England, sans serifs took hold, and were rapidly assimilated by trade engravers, quickly becoming just another of the styles on offer to clients. Even if the signboards of 1805 have long since disappeared, remembered only in L.Y.'s crude wood engravings, there are plenty of examples of sans-serifs being used in 1805 and for years immediately following. Enough to testify to the popularity of the new style. One telling example is the ticket for the Melville trial of 1806, a sort of cross between the impeachment of Richard Nixon and the trial of Martha Stewart. <laughs> the tickets were engraved by John Strongy Farm, Martha's name, seal engraver to the Prince of Wales, a later George IV, and, and sort of known as a leader of the tonne or fashion. Some serifs adapted somewhat to the conventions of the engraved letter. Here seem to be joining the establishment So there you have it about as much of 1805 as I can retrieve for you well, one of the curious and cautionary things of so about research has been that of all the quotations I've given you not one is yet available online. you're looking vain on the internet for full text versions of the gentleman's magazine the European magazine, the spirit of the public journals, or even of Robert Sotheby's Letters from England. It's just not fair. Literature searches are still best, con- best conducted in the library, although it's sometimes with a sense of despair that I find myself in one, with lots of the world's literature to get through. It's especially difficult at the British Library, where so much of the material I wanted to pull down and browse through has been taken, up, taken off open shelf, and one has to work through runs of periodicals in six-volume consignments. Looking back, it was very helpful to realise also that in 1805, the discussion of sans serifs comes to an almost complete end, as soon as news reaches England, of the events of Monday, the twenty-first of October, our sort of ten twenty-one, Trafalgar Day, a date imprinted on the breast of every true-blooded Englishman. The debate about Saint Seraphs fell silent, as England went in- into mourning for Admiral Lord Nelson. I probably run over time, but perhaps you'll forgive me if I end with a few lines from the Guardian newspaper's special report on the island of San Serif. Look at the date and thank you for listening. So, uh, com- com- completely serious. Okay, are there any questions or is there a discussion we can have? We have some
0: Treatises on the island of San It has a vigorous fantasy point. Thank you very much. So, uh, uh, I think we'll turn now, if may, to the first four, the South Lunch, and all of them for informal questions over the class.
2: some as fast as we can. What kind of mm-hmm. time uh, are you tomorrow? early. Uh, yes. Okay.
0: Don't say a word. Okay. Uh, <laughs> did, did, did
2: you hear enough? It was great. It was great. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. nice Excellent. Uh, thank you for this. Uh, you're, you're welcome. welcome.
0: Uh, Let's go Let's so go start.
2: Okay. Hold, hold, I a good I don't
1: know. I I